Well, good morning. I'm going to have a stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. And I also want you to uh, maybe circle a date. Uh, Patty and I are going to be taking a group of people to Israel in uh, 2024, Lord willing. Uh, we've had those things happen that we got canceled. So, But Lord willing, we'll be going in February. So we have an interest meeting on April the 19th. That's not very far away. Today's already the second. So if you're interested... Uh, there'll be more information. We'll have it in our newsletter, and we'll ha- you know, you'll see the dates show up in our church. But I'm just giving you a heads up. Some people have asked me, when are you going back? Uh, February 2024, Lord willing. Okay, let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you this morning that you are the God that has a plan that's greater than ours. And Lord, I just pray today in our lives, because all of us experience disappointment, and we have things happening in our lives where we don't understand what's going on. They just seem to be unrealized, some of our expectations. And we read in Scripture, this is not abnormal or unnatural. It happens to every human being. And so I pray today as we hear the story of Palm Sunday, Lord, that you're going to speak into our lives words of hope, words of reassurance, words of comfort, and words of faith. That we'll leave this place knowing that you are in control that you have a plan for our lives that exceeds anything that we could ever ask, think, or even imagine. And we thank you for that. Your plan is better than ours. And we accept that, Lord. We just uh, recognize how great and how awesome you are and what you are doing in our lives many times is unbeknown to us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. How many know we're living in an information age? Probably never had so much information. Matter of fact, people want to restrict information, right? But, you know, a lot of it is we're trying to figure out today what's reality, what's actually true, what's not true today. And what you and I believe is very powerful. What we believe shapes our decision-making process. Isn't that true? What you think you actually become. You don't realize it. So Jesus, in talking to his disciples, came along and had never told them who he was. He had demonstrated it by his actions that he was you know, someone other than uh, just a prophet. I mean, how many know when you're talking to the wind and waves and they're obeying you, uh, the disciples in the boat said, what manner of man is this? Right? So now they're, they're even questioning uh, when you're seeing the dead rise from... You know, people rising from the dead. You're seeing things that others had never seen before. There's a realization that God is at work in a unique way in the person of Jesus. And they're beginning to wonder. And Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? I believe the answer to that question, even today, is a question that we need to be confronted with. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because the answer to that question is going to shape your life. It's actually our response, and it needs to be understood in the light of his authority and his identity. And I believe, if we really believe Jesus is who he has revealed himself to be, it's going to affect who we are, who we will become, and ultimately, where we will spend eternity. These are, this is the most important question. There's a lot of questions in life. A lot of people are going to ask you a lot of questions. This is the number one most important question you and I need to answer. Who is Jesus? It's interesting reading the gospel writers explaining the various moments in the life of Jesus. And I think one of the most moving accounts, one of the most dynamic and exciting moments was the day Jesus 
got on a little donkey and rode into Jerusalem. It's called Palm Sunday. The church celebrates that every year. And, uh, you know, usually we have palms decorating our church, and Vicki told me she's the person in charge of this area. She goes, Pastor, it's been so cold all over North America, I couldn't even find palm leaves this year. I said, don't even worry about it. It's not about palm leaves anyways. <laughs> right? That's nice when you have decorations, but we don't have that. So don't worry about that. You know, Matthew describes the event this way. In Matthew chapter 21.10, it says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Isn't that a great? Remember, it's the same question coming back again. Uh, Luke also reports that the city was stirred, and the term that he uses is a term where we get our word seismic. That's the Greek word, seismic. When you think of seismic, what are you thinking? Earthquake. You know, there was a shaking. There was a, there, everybody was talking about it. You know, you ever have those moments in life where you get fixated on an event? You know, think about when the Twin Towers are coming down. Everyone's just glued, right? We're fixated on an event. This was the moment because this was a season where the Jewish people, three times a year they had festivals and all of these Jews were showing up to celebrate the Passover meal and that city was packed with Jewish people from all parts of the Mediterranean region and they were all asking the question, who is this? Very powerful. It's interesting that, as James Edward, Edwards says, at the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC, this is going all the way back to where I've been preaching in Jeremiah, you know, Babylon. Ezekiel had a vision of the glory of the Lord departing from Jerusalem and then settling on the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is actually very close to Jerusalem. There's just a valley in between them. Ezekiel said the glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped of the mountain east of it. According to Zechariah 14, he says the Mount of Olives would actually be the site of final judgment. And the rabbis and the writer Josephus, who was a Jewish writer, said this in his writings in Antiquities. He associated it with the coming of the Messiah. So the book of Zechariah is prophesying the coming of the Messiah, and he would come from the Mount of Olives. Just hang on to that thought. It says here in Zechariah chapter three, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. In other words, when the Messiah comes, there'll be a great earthquake. Now, we know that's gonna happen. This, is, this actually has two, uh, two fulfillments. So the first one is the story we're gonna look at today. Because Jesus is coming from the Mount of Olives. Uh, in Mark it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out uh, to Bethany with the 12. Uh, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here just a little bit. Okay, so Jesus is now coming. I, have, I think I have a picture here. Is it there? Okay, good. So where we're looking at this picture from, this is a shot that, you know, either myself or somebody from our one group, we're looking from the Mount of Olives right here, and you're looking down, and then you're looking up, and you see that little gold dome. Everybody sees that, right? That's uh, the rock. Uh, the, uh, it's, it's a mausoleum called the Dome of the Rock, okay? This is actually the place 
where Abraham offered up Isaac. So the Muslim people, they actually created a mausoleum to celebrate that. That's what's there. But what was there before is very fascinating, was the temple of God. And when you look at this picture, it kind of, how many go, you're immediately drawn to the gold dome? Your eyes are immediately drawn there, is it not? Because it's made of gold. Herod's temple, when he built the temple on the site there, he began to restore the second temple and he literally transformed it. He, he actually laid out uh, a platform there, 35 acres. He smoothed off the mountain and he added to the temple and he went up and he put gold on it and it was actually three times this building, three times, three times higher and it was made of gold on the top. Why did he do that? He wanted to show the uh, the glory of God. It was, it was the, the, the temple, Herod's te the, uh, extended temple. It was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was designed to create awe in a person's life. It was, it was designed to inspire people. That makes sense, right? Uh, very powerful thing. As a matter of fact, it, it actually achieved its purpose because we know at the, toward the end of Jesus' life, the disciples were actually at the temple and they raised an interesting question in Mark. They said, as he was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings, because there was more than one building on the temple site. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So you say, well, Jesus is actually... Uh, trying to prepare his disciples for something that was gonna shatter their expectations. Let's go back to the Palm Sunday for a moment here. In Palm Sunday, what were the Jewish people expecting? Well, here was their expectation. They thought that the Messiah would come and he would defeat the Romans, okay? And all of this oppression and this world power would come to an end and the nation of Judah would come to the forefront. The nation of Israel would come to the forefront and be, you know, the greatest nation on earth and that the Messiah would reign over the entire world. And that, that's a great expectation. And when you're, when you're living in suffering and oppression and difficulty, to have that hope inside of you and then all of a sudden, you know, the disciples are watching what Jesus is doing and they're beginning to believe in their hearts that Jesus is the Messiah because Peter made that great confession, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. The word Christ and Messiah are the same words. It's just a different language. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. So they were identifying that Jesus was the Messiah and many people were beginning to believe. As a matter of fact, the religious leaders were threatened by Jesus because the common people were beginning to believe that he was the Messiah and they could not see themselves in the new uh, realm of Jesus' leadership. You can see what's going on. There's a tension building in this nation. And that's why the high priest said, you know, there's one man must die in order to save the nation. In other words, we've got to get rid of Jesus. Otherwise, our standing with the Romans is going to come to an end because the people believed that Rome was going to falter in the light of the Messiah's approach. This is the context of Palm Sunday. Jesus now comes along and he, he actually begins to enact the whole situation of you know, the Palm Sunday story. He start, he's, he's showing them, yes, I am the Messiah. We're gonna look at that in a moment. 
But what they think is about to happen is not going to happen the way they think. Because you see, Jesus is not coming to conquer Rome. He's coming to conquer something greater than Rome. He's coming to conquer the sins of all of humanity. He's not coming to exalt one nation. He's coming to reach all nations. His scope of understanding far exceeds a very limited viewpoint. And often in our lives, we have a very limited viewpoint of what we anticipate happening in our lives. And what God has planned is far greater than what you and I have planned. Even though many times what we are living out seems in our minds quite humble. You know, it, it seems like, you know, nothing significant may be happening. As a matter of fact, Jesus comes in humility, not in riding a white charger into the city to conquer the Romans. And I'll give you an idea uh, of the reality of the story because this is history, folks. When you're there, you'll see something that's very fascinating because when you're looking at the Jews worshiping and praying at what we call the, the weeping wall or the western wall, all you're looking at is the retaining wall where the temple site was upon. That's it. That's all you're looking at. And so... Here's a picture of Patty, that's my wife. The reason, you know, she's beautiful, I know. But what I'm trying to show you is these stones, if I didn't put her there, you would just look at, oh, those are just, you know, stones, right? There's no, you can't even get a sense of how big these stones are. These are the stones that got pushed off. These are like part of the temple buildings got pushed off the site. And when they started excavating, the Jewish people just said, we're going to leave a bunch of them just sitting the way they fell. They, they cleaned up a lot of it, but they left some so that you and I would get an idea what it looks like. So I said, Patty, why don't you go stand over there? I'll take this picture because nobody's going to believe how big these stones are. Can you see what's happened here? So everything on top got leveled. There's nothing up there. And Jesus said, not one stone will stand upon another. See, Jesus is actually saying this is about to happen. Now, James Edwards explains... Uh, Jesus is not a reformer of the temple. For neither his teachings nor his ministry instituted a program of change and improvement. You see, because that's what you and I go about doing things. We want to change things, we want to improve things. Rather, it's a fulfillment and a replacement, which is a lot different. For his death on the cross and not the powerful temple cult is the perfect atonement for sin. Why am I saying all of this? Because a lot of people are still very literalistic in their thinking and they say, you know, uh, you know and, and I know theologically people are going, well, the temple's gotta be rebuilt and they'll be instituting sacrifice. I'm going, there's no need for any of that. Because you and I are God's temple. And there's, there's only one sacrifice and that's Christ's sacrifice and it's a, a complete sacrifice. There's no need for another sacrifice. Now, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is filled with messianic and divinely authoritative overtones. Mark more subtly brings this out in contrast to Matthew and Luke in telling the story. So what is Mark trying to tell us in communicating to us what this means for each of us, not just in the first century? Because I think when we read the Gospels, we almost feel like they're reporters giving us an up-to-date account after the incident happened. No, they're actually three different accounts written 20 to 5 to 30 years later with a purpose in mind to explain something to us that's a little bit different in each of the Gospels. So what is Mark trying to say that will be applicable to you and me today? Because I think, you know, that's great. We have this historical account, which we need, 
It had an impact in the first century, but what kind of an impact should it have in the 21st century? That's what I'm concerned about. And I think there are three elements in the story that demonstrates Jesus' identity, but also his authority. And the first of all is demonstrated by the things that Jesus is saying. We're gonna look at those. And I think a lot of people, you know, say things, but can they do what they say? You see, Jesus says things and he can back it up. Sometimes we can't. He speaks with certainty because he knows the future, we don't. Who we are and what we're capable of doing has huge ramifications on what we can actually accomplish. Jesus tells his disciples now to secure a cult, which later is seen as a prophetic fulfillment found, again, in the prophet Zechariah. And so we pick up the story in Mark chapter 11, in verse one, he says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. So where's Jesus coming from but the Mount of Olives? He's coming from the east. He's coming from that mountain, exactly as it was prophesied. Then it says this, they sa he said to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever written. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're doing this, tell them the Lord needs it and will send it back shortly. Uh, I, you know, you could preach a whole sermon just on that one verse. You know, first of all, who owns what? You know, God owns everything. And when he says the Lord needs it, you know, that word Lord there is a different word. It's not, you know, a word that, you know, somebody's just a master. He's, he's basically saying, uh, the idea is, is bigger than that. As a matter of fact, theologian James Edwards says, his hearers, of course, may have understood the term in the sense of master, but the use of curios rather than I or even the son of man appears to be another instance of Jesus's Yeshua, which, which really means his authority. It's, he's, he's speaking with authority. He's showing his authority. He says, it's pres presuming his divine authority. He's, he's doing it based on his authority. He says, I'm, I'm gonna borrow this right now. Actually, God owns everything. I'm borrowing what I own. That's what he's telling them. And the Lord, uh, let me just go back here. It says, Jesus is about to do something that's not gonna just change a, uh, a political situation. He's about to change all of humanity. You know, a lot of us, we, we settle for a lot less than what God wants to accomplish. Think about it. We think the answer sometimes is, well, we're gonna, we're gonna get a different leader in here and they're gonna, they're gonna change this, you know, the way we want it. How many know you can't control what's gonna happen in the future anyways? You don't know where this world is going and none of these leaders know where this world is going unless they know God personally and unless God's revealing it to them, you know? As a matter of fact, uh, we see here that Jesus is about to reverse the curse of sin. I love the Bible. You think about it. You start in Genesis where humanity rebelled against God and God goes, I'm gonna fix the problem. And humanity can't fix its own problem. There's, that's the issue. And so we read here uh, all the way back to Genesis chapter three when the, 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 the husband and wife, Adam and Eve, decided to disobey God. They ate of the tree. And the Lord said, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us. Wow, that's pretty powerful. They, they, they're, they're, they're actually taking on the role of God. That's what he's basically saying. By the way, can we take on the role of God in our lives? 
The moment I stop yielding to God's will, I'm playing God. I don't think of it that way usually, nor do you, but it's true, we're playing God, right? Now we know we're gonna make this decision. We're not interested in what God says, we're doing our thing, and that means I'm playing in the role of God. The man now, they're gonna become like us, knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and to eat and live forever. You say, well, why, why wouldn't God let us continue to live in eternity in a sinful condition? How many go, I, you know, after living so many years here and things just seem to be full of evil and sin, anybody get weary of it? How many here get weary of sin and evil? I'm weary of it. Aren't you weary of it? How would you like to just have eternity of this? Everybody goes hard pass. Anybody for a hard pass on that? I want to live in a world where there is no sin. I want to live in a world where there's no more disease. I want to live in a world where there's no more bitterness and anger and frustration. I want to live in a world where sin has been eradicated by God and you and I can love each other perfectly. I want to live in that world rather than live in a sin-filled world. How many say amen to that? Okay, so God says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bar you from that and I'm gonna make a provision so that you can live in the world that I just described. He says in verse 23, so the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground for which he had been taken. In other words, he was created from earth. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, God made an impediment so that they could not just easily go there. And there's always been an impediment, but thank God that Jesus came to remove the impediment so that you and I, you know, a, a very powerful thing, when you and I receive Jesus, what we're really doing is now eating from the tree of life. But maybe we don't think of it that way, but it's true. We're now eating from the tree of life. You and I now have eternal life. It doesn't start when you and I physically leave. It starts when you and I receive Christ. We have a new kind of life. It's a life that's moving us away from the world of sin and darkness. But we have to keep moving in the right direction. Sin always banishes us from the presence of God, keeps us from a holy God. So what does Jesus do when he comes to Jerusalem? He goes right to the temple, but then he leaves and heads with his disciples to Bethany. And we read that verse a little earlier. Jesus went to Jerusalem, went to the temple. Now when you read Matthew's account, it looks like he just goes right into the temple and cleans it up, but Mark says something interesting. He said he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went to Bethany with the 12. So in other words, we're getting a little clearer chronology for Mark than we did from Matthew. Matthew is interested in showing and explaining something that Jesus did. He doesn't, you know, give you the kind of moment my moment blow. That's why this is not you know, an investigative reporter writing it down. But Mark is a little closer to more the chronology of time in this moment. And he says, no, Jesus went and took a look. He saw what was going on. So this tells me this is not you know, a rash you know, action on Jesus' part. This is a premeditated action he's gonna do the next day. That's what it tells me. You know, he's not, you know, I'm coming, you know, the crowds are cheering, Jesus is coming in the city, and all of a sudden he sees this, you know, temple, and he doesn't like what's going on, and then he acts out of emotion. See, that's how we behave. But Jesus is now premeditating. He's looking at what's going on, and he's concerned about something that's happening in the temple. He goes away, sleeps on it. What does Jesus see? Timothy Keller says, when you step inside the temple, the first area you reach is the court of the Gentiles. Remember that? And actually, there's a sign that says, 
you know, you can't go any further than this if you're not a Jewish person. By, by, by uh, you, you're actually, it, it says you can die going beyond this point. How's that? Pretty serious stuff. It was the biggest section of the, of the temple and you had to go through it to get to the rest of it and all the business operations were there. Here's the problem. You know, a lot of people are impeded in their relationship to God because of money. And sometimes the church is the worst culprit because it becomes about money. Isn't that true? It is true. You know, think about it. What was going on there? Well, I'm gonna give you the enormity of the business side of the temple operation. James Edwards said, he says, Josephus in his book on war, in, he says in AD 66, that year the temple was com totally completed by Herod, there were 255,600 lambs that were sacrificed for Passover. Within a week, a quarter, over a quarter of a million lambs were slaughtered. Now, does anybody have any sense, you know, if you've ever you know, been involved in butchering an animal, can you imagine over a quarter of a million animals sacrificed? And that's for the sins of the peoples and the nation. You can't even imagine the smell. You can understand why they have to have incense now. You can understand why there's a dung gate where they actually take the remains of some of this stuff out. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a really a messy operation. And why does God require a sacrifice? Because the nature of sin is such that it always produces death. And so these animals now become a substitute for human sin. But here's what you need to know about it. People didn't bring a lamb to the, to the temple to get sacrificed. There was an operation. They had temple shepherds. Remember when Jesus appeared in Bethlehem, uh, the, when he was born in Bethlehem? Bethlehem is only a few kilometers from Jerusalem and the temple shepherds were out there in the fields in Bethlehem. It's, the story all ties together, folks. And it was these sheep that were being taken care of in order to be sacrificed and so Jesus now comes along to replace that whole system through his own death. Now think about it. You have to buy the sheep. But you come, let's say, from Rome. You're a Jew from Rome or you're a Jew from another part of the empire. And even the people living in the city, they, the Jewish people had you know, a coinage simply for the temple because they didn't want to have you know, unholy money. And so they had a whole exchange system. And guess what? They were cheating everybody on the system. So there was graft and corruption in the house of God. And so what Jesus was looking at was how these people were actually impeding the people's access to God via this greed and corruption and graft that was going on. And actually, there was a thought in those days, uh, you know, their, their thinking was simply that, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I'll just, I'll, I'll say the thought. The thought was that Jesus would cleanse the temple from Gentiles, when in reality, Jesus was gonna cleanse uh, the temple for the Gentiles. It was a totally different approach to the situation. Uh, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus now enters the temple area a little later on, this next day. And he begins driving out those who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Because they didn't just slaughter sheep, they had doves in the hole. It was a whole different system. If you're too poor for a sheep, you bought a dove. It says, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is, is it not written, 
that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. So Jesus is quoting from an Old Testament prophet, and he says, hey, this place was designed for people to connect with God, and you guys are taking advantage of people. And so he was upset about that because they were impeding people's relationships with God. Timothy Keller said it was popularly believed that when the Messiah showed up, he would purge the temple of foreigners. Instead, here's Jesus cleaning the temple for the Gentiles, acting as their advocate. But what, was even, what he was doing was even more subversive. He was challenging the entire sacrificial system altogether and saying that the Gentiles, the pagan, the unwashed Gentiles, could now go directly to God in prayer. He was removing this whole system. He's taking it apart. He was fulfilling it through his own death and resurrection. Wow, this is powerful. This was amazing because the people knew the history of the temple. The story of the temple starts all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The primal garden was a sanctuary. Uh, it was the place where the presence of God dwelt. It was a paradise because death, deformity, evil, and imperfection cannot coexist with God's presence. In the presence of God, how many realize there's peace and there's, there's absolute fulfillment of life and joy and bliss, but when the first human beings decided to build their lives on something other than God and to let other things besides God give them the ultimate meaning and, and significance, paradise was lost. You see, when you and I think our plan is better than God's plan, we lose out on God's plan. That's what he was, that's what Keller's trying to explain to us here. And he says, turning from God has had dreadful consequences. Building our lives on other things, power, status, acclaim, family, race, nationality, has caused conflict, war, violence, poverty, disease, and death. And how true that is. So how can we have this breach, this barrier to God repaired? How can we have a relationship like this restored? How is Jesus gonna justify his actions and what he's doing in the temple? And so he quotes Isaiah 56, which speaks of the exclusion of God's uh, extension of God's salvation to people who formerly were excluded from it, foreigners, eunuchs, exiles, and Gentiles. So what is Jesus, what he's doing is explaining this true mission that he came to bring, which was including all of the humanity, to bring them into a relationship with him. This was very different than what the people were expecting. How many already recognized it? This, this is like, you know, it's messing with them. They, they just can't understand it. So when Jesus now, you know, they, he gets through this week and you get down to, you know, he's in the garden, he's arrested, he's, you know, he's tried, he's crucified. You can imagine all of these people who thought he was the Messiah, they're like totally shattered. I mean, the disciples are locked up in a room for fear of the Jews, it says. This is, this, they're disillusioned. I mean, they're walking a lot to the road to Emmaus. Two of them are talking to each other, and Jesus shows up, and they don't recognize him. And, they, and Jesus says, what are you guys talking about? He says, haven't you heard? The one who we thought was the hope for all Israel, they crucified. And then Jesus has to correct them and says, you guys don't understand the scriptures. You don't understand God's plan. You've totally missed it. You've misunderstood. Can we not admit sometimes in our lives we've totally misunderstood what God was trying to do? Have we ever had moments in our life where we had expectations that weren't realized? We had a plan that didn't pan out. We really thought God was in it and it didn't work out that way. That happened to these guys. And it happens to us. You know, 
I don't know what disappointments you're experiencing, what your expectations are, but I'm gonna just make the statement. How many think God's plan was a lot better than what they had in mind? How many glad that when Jesus came, he didn't just come to you know, reinstitute the Jewish nation and make it better than all the other nations. He actually came to save the whole world. He didn't just become a savior of his own people. He became the savior of all people. How great is that? And he didn't just come to deal with political oppression and tyranny and totalitarianism, which we're all hung up about today, but he actually came to deliver us from the greatest problem, and that's our own sin. That's a far greater problem, folks. And he dealt with the ultimate issue, death itself, so that you and I can live and recognize that this life alone does not define our lives. And it doesn't matter, you know, what our social status is in life because one day none of these things will matter. How's that? And all the things that we're hung up about in life, you know, you know, who am I and what is my gender and all the rest of that stuff is going to have no determination in eternity. How's that? Aren't you guys kind of happy that, you know, we don't have to worry about all of those things because God actually addressed all the problems? And that if we would just come to him and trust in him and stop trying to figure it all out, we probably wouldn't be so disappointed. Well, let me move on. Let's go. Yeah, let me go back. I want to read that because I think that's a good quote there by Edwards. The temple is not the sole property of Israel, but a witness to the nations, the place where anyone who loves the name of the Lord may worship him, a place where God still gathers still others. In other words, God is not exclusive. He's inclusive. He's bringing people in. Let me move to the second element, what he does. So how does Jesus go about challenging the false expectations and the wrong assumptions about God's purposes, not only for Jews, but also for the entire world? How does he go about correcting my wrong assumptions and your wrong assumptions? Chapter 11, verse 12, it says, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. It says he saw in the distance a fig tree and leaf, and he went out to it, and he had, if it had it to, to see if there was any fruit on it. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Now what it meant was there was leaves on the tree. There should have been something on the tree. It just wasn't ripe fruit. That's what he's saying here. Mark is saying. It says, then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. What's going on? This story has caused problems for a lot of people. Because this is the only story of a miracle of destruction in the Gospels. <laughs> Something weird, Jesus is cursing this tree, you know? James Edwards says, the earliest commentary on the Gospel of Mark by Victor of Antioch in the fifth century already understood the event as an enacted parable in which the cursing of the fig tree symbolized the judgment to befall Jerusalem. And we know from history, Jerusalem was destroyed. I showed you the stones that fell off the Temple Mount there in 70 AD. This is like 35 years after Jesus warned against that very thing. The reason Mark places the story of the fig tree here, it's actually a, an enacted or a, a, an, an, a modern parable. It represents the state of religion in Israel. You see, they were promising something, but they weren't delivering on it. They were promising life, but there was only death there. It was a sham. There was nothing there to nourish a person's soul. And Edwards goes on and explains, after the fig harvest from mid-August to mid-October, the branches of a fig tree spout, spout buds that remain undeveloped throughout the winter. And these buds begin to swell into small green knots known as pagem in March and April, followed shortly by the sprouting of leaf buds on the same branches, usually in April. And the fig tree is in leaf one 
and therefore expects to find branches loaded with these little buds or these, the beginning of the fruit in various stages of maturation. This is implied in 11.13 where Jesus seeing a fig tree in full foliage turns aside in hopes of finding something edible. In the spring of the year, the, the pageum are of course not yet ripened into mature summer figs, but they can be eaten and are often eaten by the native people of the land. The fig, the tree turns out to be deceptive for it is green and folded, but when Jesus inspects it, he finds no, no fruit. It's a sign. It's a tree with the signs of fruit, but no fruit. So what's the lesson about? Jesus finds the fig tree not doing its job. It's not doing what they're supposed to be doing. So the tree is the perfect metaphor for Israel. And beyond that, for those claiming to be God's people which bear no fruit for him. How many know God's looking for fruit? Does anybody know that? See, one of the problems we have sometimes as Christians, you know, we, we think that, you know, we're saved by grace, therefore there should be nothing, you know, we're not trusting in works. Yes, I, I get all of that. But I'll just make this argument like James does. If we truly have faith, something should be happening inside of us that brings about a change in our behavior that eventually produces good works. And that's what James is telling us in his, his epistle. It says, Jesus was returning to a place that was most religiously very busy, and just like most churches, tasks, committees, noise, people coming and going, lots of transactions. But the real issue is, what's really happening? Are people's lives changing? That's the, that's the key question. What's changing in our lives? Jesus wants more than outward show. He wants genuine fruit. So what does that look like? Isn't that a great question? What kind of fruit is God looking for? You know, I, I just did the whole series on 1 Corinthians. You know what I was trying to get across to people? What is true spirituality? And here's what you need to hear. You know, people are all, we all, God's spirit will give us all the gift, but that's not true spirituality. That comes from God. True spirituality is what's being produced in our lives. That's called fruit. And what is the fruit of the spirit? Love. And so what we need to be asking ourselves is, am I more loving? And what does love look like? It's not just an emotion, folks. That's what I think our society tells us. But love is not just an emotion. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is gentle. Love is self-controlled. Love is patient. Let me go back there because this is an impatient culture. I see a lot of Christians that are very impatient. That's very unloving. Why, why do we think everything has to be done? You see, I think what's happening is the spirit of the culture is in doing, is embedding itself in our spirit, and therefore we're uptight all the time, and we expect things right away. Come on, let's be honest about it. Rather than being far more gracious and kind and understanding and forgiving, I think that's the spirit that Jesus wants us to operate in. So the disciples are hearing Jesus curse the fig tree, and what the leaders are hearing is a denouncement of their behavior. This is really putting Jesus uh, in some pressure. So, you know, I ask the question, you know, when we're walking in the spirit, we should be less anxious, more patient, more forgiving, less angry, and are we learning to become less fearful and more faithful? Is our lives becoming more about others and less about ourselves? Isn't that interesting? You know, when you and I move outside of ourselves, it's really powerful what starts happening. We start changing. Uh, Mark chapter 11, he says, the chief priests and teachers of the law heard this, began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. Do you know when people are afraid of something, they want to destroy it? How many know that's true? They, can't, they don't understand it, they just want to get rid of it. Because the whole crowd now was amazed at his teachings. And you know, you pick this statement up 
in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus is speaking with authority. He has spiritual authority. He can say things. And people are hearing these things. It says, in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree. It was withered from its roots. Can you imagine? One day Jesus goes, you're not going to produce anymore. They walked away. They remembered what he had said to the tree. They didn't think of anything of it. The next day as they're coming to the temple, they look, and all of a sudden the fig tree is withered right down to its roots. How many go? That's pretty impressive. Is that, is that not impressive? You know, Peter remembering and said to Jesus, hey, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed, it's withered. There's no life there now. Powerful. Uh, let me move to the final element here. What he says, what he does, but what he offers. Jesus, who he is and what he's doing is defined by what he's offering now. He's done things, he's, he's said things, but now he's gonna offer something. One of the lessons we learn in life is the weakness of humanity. You know when you're young, you're vibrant, you feel like you can take on the world. How many know as you get a little older, one of the biggest problems is not to get cynical, right? Come on, as people get older, they get weaker, they start looking around, we see human weakness, people get cynical, they get angry, they get frustrated, all these kind of things. And there are many wonderful things in our world, but there are also many heartaches, and there are many disappointments. We find that we can even come to the end of ourselves and realize that all the positive thinking can leave us empty. So, sorry, Norman Vincent Peale, I just don't buy it. Positive thinking isn't gonna do everything. No, I think there's a measure of truth that we need to focus on the positives rather than the negatives all the time. Because I think, you know, I look at it this way. If you're looking at God, even though you're not, you're not denying there's problems, I believe that your outlook in life is gonna change. Because you're gonna be able to see that God is able. Okay, that's what I believe that's important. But just, you know, trying to wish things away isn't gonna happen. You know, the effects of sin, injustice, pain, and disease can strike at any time. And all of us in this room have had experiences where things happen unexpectedly. And it's devastating. You know, we can see even judgment coming in a variety of forms. But Jesus now showing his authority over the creation of the world spoke into this uh, into the believers' lives and said to them, listen, if you have faith, the very thing I did, you could do. Seeing that Jesus had merely spoken to the tree and it died, Peter points out the results and Jesus challenges Peter and us included and says, look, if you have faith in God, the only person who can give us access into the presence of God is Jesus. You know, how many know access is a big thing? You know, if you come to a locked house and you don't have a key, you're not getting in unless you're going to try to break in. But you don't have access. But the moment you have the key, you don't even have to worry about anything. You just use the key and you have access. Jesus is the key into the presence of the living God. When you have Jesus, you have access. And we need to understand that. Uh, so the same prophet Isaiah answers the question. In other words, you know, who can give us, who can, who can help us in our problems? And this is what Isaiah says. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. He says, but your inequities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his faith from you so that you, so that he will not hear. So God himself in Isaiah, what does he do? He becomes 
the solution to the humanity's problems. He becomes the savior. In verse 53, we read these beautiful verses that says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We are like sheep. We've all gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. So in other words, what we're reading is, God says, look, you know, when humanity sinned in the garden, you know, why, you know what God did? He said, I'm gonna fix the problem. You and I don't save ourselves. Human beings are not gonna save ourselves, and I don't care all the plans in the world to save our planet aren't gonna work. We have a savior, but it's not us. That doesn't give us an excuse to destroy the planet. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying that you and I are incapable of saving ourselves. We need a savior outside of ourselves. Everybody in this room, if you've ever struggled with addictions, you know they're so powerful. You, you can't just willpower it away. It's too strong. You need something more powerful than that. You need a savior to deliver you from that. So Jesus is now dies as a substitute for us. And when he dies, something very dramatic happens. And we read about it in the Gospels. The temple uh, curtain that kept people from the presence of God was torn which was a symbol to say that you and I now have access into the presence of Almighty God. So Jesus now is gonna delegate his authority to us through a vehicle called prayer. That's why prayer is so profound and powerful. A lot of us don't understand why we should be praying. Well, I'm gonna tell you why. Because you and I can't tap into this unless we're communicating with God. That's the key. In verse 23, it says, I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, now he's making a condition on prayer, See, there's a lot of, you know, people, we take one verse and we run with it. No, here comes the condition. He says, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. <clears throat> the psalmist said, if I regard inequity in my heart, God's not going to hear me. So we have to deal with the sin issue before we have the right to be heard by God. That's why when Jesus is teaching on the Lord's Prayer, if you notice what he said, Father, he's talking about forgiveness at the very end of that prayer. He says, forgive us our sins conditioned on I'm forgiving others their sins. Jesus says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. What happens if I don't forgive people their sins? That's a scary thought. Are my sins forgiven? You see, you can see how all of this is hinged together. So it's not just you and I, you know, walking around saying, you know, I'm gonna manipulate God to achieve my ends. It doesn't work that way, folks. You and I have to come to God on his terms and follow his, I mean, he's the one that's made the provision, not us. We go, okay, what, how do I access this? So when we come to Christ, let me close with this. I'm, my time is done and I want to just close with this. When we come to Christ, what should we be looking for? Obviously, you know, Jesus was looking for something when he came to the temple, was he not? When he saw the fig tree, he was looking for something and he didn't find it. 
so he cursed it. What he was looking for in the temple he didn't find. Jesus actually provides the answer for us in his death and resurrection. But I want to close with this little segment of a sermon from Jonathan Edwards. You say, who's he? He was a Puritan preacher in the 1700s in New England during the Great Awakening. And in one of his sermons, he's describing the excellencies of Christ. And he, said, he brought out the idea that Jesus was all God and all man. And with that, described all kinds of character traits that would be what we would consider mutually exclusive. They don't go together. Things like infinite majesty and complete humility. Isn't that amazing? But in Jesus, they were there, both. Perfect justice and boundless grace and mercy. All sufficiency in himself and yet completely submissive and dependent on the Father. A true follower of Jesus is not about being a religious person, a nicer person, a more disciplined person, or a moral person. All of those things may happen, but the reality is when we come to Jesus, we will become more like him. The one who came into Jerusalem on a donkey, which speaks of humility, then storms into a temple in moral indignation, not because he was upset about some violation against him, but against the impediment of people coming to God because of what was going on there. And then ultimately giving up his life for the transgressors, for the very people that were impeding people from coming in. Jesus is dying for them. So we can get very pompous here and go, yeah, I don't like these people. They're keeping people from God. Just remember, those people are the ones that Jesus died for, which includes us. Because you know, sometimes you and I are an impediment for people coming to God. We need to be forgiven by God. It's that powerful. So I just said this to myself, you know, we are becoming a more complete person. That's where we should be happening right now in our life. A person that God designed us to become because he's freed us from the devastation that sin brings in our lives. And so let us trust that we don't allow our disappointment and expectations to turn us away from God's purposes for our lives. Why don't we stand as we close? I said a lot today, I know. You'll think about it. I'm sure, you'll be thinking about it. How many here today, you say to yourself, you know what, I've been disappointed in life. Anybody here ever been disappointed in life? Any disappointed people? Anybody ever experienced things where you thought, surely this is the way it's gonna go and it didn't turn out that way? You know, yeah. We've all ran into that. And you know, sometimes we think, hey, I've been disappointed with God. I thought he was gonna do this. But I'm gonna just say this, your plan and my plan, when that happens, just too small, just too small. God's got something even greater in store. We need to look to him this morning, right? Let's look to him. Can we take our expectations and our disappointments? Can I just, let's just open our hands and say, okay, God, here's my expectations. And I wanna even give you my disappointments today. I wanna give you my expectations and disappointments and I'm gonna let you be the Lord. I'm just gonna give them to you right now. I think you're so smart, so wise, so good. And I know you gotta work through stubborn people. I'm one of them, right? I'm one of them. And some of my expectations are for other people and maybe they don't share what I want for them. And maybe God doesn't even share what you have for someone else. 
Maybe God has something totally different in mind. Now, parents can do that. We go, oh, I expect that from my kid. No, God says, I got something else in mind. We gotta let that stuff go. So we're gonna give our expectations today and our disappointments to God. Let's just do that. Let's just lift up our hands and say, okay, here they are, God. I'm gonna give them to you. Because I think sometimes we set ourselves up to be extremely frustrated and upset and angry when we don't have to be. I think what we can be is full of joy and hope and grace in our lives and we can treat people a lot better if we can let go of a lot of our junk. Amen? So Father, we just give them to you today. We just give these things up to you. We surrender them to you, Father. We know that you're a good God. We know that you're a loving person and we know that what you came to do was so much greater than what your people thought in that hour. And it's not just that hour, it's even in this hour. What we think you should be doing, maybe you have something even greater than mine. Even though we may feel disappointed, we feel like you haven't done enough, when in reality, you're probably doing more than we could ever understand, think, or imagine. So we just give in to you, Father. We surrender our little agendas and the way we see life and the way we understand things. We're just giving it over to you right now. That's not to make us indifferent. That's not to make us apathetic or neglectful. But Lord, help us to be more like you. To have a greater degree of compassion and understanding, a greater degree of kindness and patience, a greater degree of expressions of love to people, and a greater degree of understanding so that, Father, you can use us as vessels of clay to bring people into your kingdom. Because we're not impeding them. We're actually bridge builders. We're bringing them to you, Father, because they see the love and the life and the joy and the blessing of Christ flowing in and through our lives. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.